Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we hear from the change agents making Tulsa and the world a more vibrant and inclusive place. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Nehemiah Frank, founder, executive editor, and director of the Black Wall Street Times, whose tagline is access is the new civil right. We talked to Nehemiah about the Juneteenth weekend that blew up Tulsa, what access really means, and why he started the Black Wall Street Times. We are very excited to have Nehemiah Frank, the founder, executive editor, and director of the Black Wall Street Times on the podcast today. Nehemiah, hello. Hello, and hello, everyone that's listening. Yes, hello to our listeners. I know. Um, we don't ever and, say hello to our listeners. So. We should. Yeah. Least, I would like to say to our two Australian listeners, good day. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. They're probably bots, but just in case they're not, I want them to know <laughs> we're listening. So, Nehemiah... It's been a very eventful, let's say, six weeks for you. So we're recording this on July 6th. It'll probably come out near the end of July. But we're going to take our listeners back to June 10th when it was announced that President Trump was going to sort of restart campaigning publicly in Tulsa, Oklahoma, originally on Juneteenth itself. And he announced that on June 10th. I thought maybe late May. I didn't realize it was only less than two weeks before that rally was going to happen. Yeah. Three days after that, he announced he was moving it to June 20th out of, quote unquote, respect. <laughs> but from, from my understanding, at that moment when he announced it, Juneteenth celebration wasn't actually scheduled. It had been canceled because of the pandemic we were living in. And then I guess I'm wondering from you, what was the decision to be like, well, we, we need to do this now? So I think it, it it probably happened, I would say, over the night. <laughs> I kind of thought about it. And then a friend of mine's and Ken Levitt called, like, I don't know, it was the earliest I had ever received a call from him. I think it was probably like, I don't even know if it was seven o'clock in the morning yet. He was like, yeah, we got to do something. And I'm like, oh, yes, we have to absolutely do something. And so we just kind of like, started brainstorming. And then I called um, a friend of mine, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher. And I said, hey, <laughs> this is happening. We need to do something. This is what Ken is saying. What do you think? And she's like, oh, yeah, we need to we need to get something planned. And, and so previous to, to the Juneteenth celebration and just planning it, we had been protesting in the streets amid COVID, right? Which is just insane. But we were able to get masks and have people out there trying to encourage people to social distance. But yeah, June has been, June was probably the hardest month I've ever worked in my entire life at the Black Wall Street Times and just period as an adult. For sure. It was the hardest I've ever worked. And I think Juneteenth week itself, I I don't even know how much I got. I, was, I, don't, I, I don't know how much sleep I got that week. It was very, very stressful. I mean, I can say just following you on Facebook was exhausting that week. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, wow. I mean, that was a very stressful week, I think, for anyone who sort of, I don't know, pays attention to things. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, and on top and of planning everything else, you also came out with your first paper copy of Black Wall yes. Street. So having to work with the logistics of that on top of everything else had to be a lot, too. Yeah, I would say uh, I'm thankful that um, someone with a lot of experience 
Oh wow, there it is. <laughs> I've got it. I've got it in my studio. Eight I'm gonna frame it. <laughs> but yeah, a person I had never met who had been vetted by some of my friends. His name is uh, Ryan Fitzgibbon. He came from um, New York and he owned a magazine company that was pretty successful up there. And so he came and offered uh, his help and the rest of that story is history. So he helped out a lot. He pulled people together. They pulled material that we had already uh, printed in the Times and some new things to to go in that special edition for Juneteenth. So why did you think it was important to to come out with the, the physical copy rather than continuing just with the digital version? Well, so our slogan is access is the new civil right. And we wanted people to really, folks who don't have access to, of course, be able to attain a free a free paper. But also we wanted to create a tool that would be an artifact for the time that we're living in. But also there was a poster in there, a Black Lives Matter poster that people were able to mount to their windows or wherever they wanted to put it, just to be as loud as possible. That was the other point of, of having that paper to say, we're here and we're spreading out more information about this nonsense that's going on in the United States in 2020. Yeah. So the, the, the sort of tagline for the Black Wall Street Times is access is the new civil right. And I want you to elaborate on that just because I want to make sure that I'm covering all the things that access could mean when I think about this. Yeah. I mean, so access to education, access to Black culture, what we're actually thinking and not what someone is, is thinking that we're thinking about. Access to information that is probably, I would say, normally would cost money. African-Americans make less than just about every other ethnic group in this nation. And so to charge someone access to a paper, it was it just doesn't seem... Is I don't think it's right. I just, but that's me. I know that we live in a capitalistic society, and of course, you have to have some sort of funding model to be able to like support yourself and pay your employees. But I mean, I feel like it's kind of asking a lot, even if it's a dollar fifty or three dollars. It's asking a lot to people who come from a plight that's been oppressed for centuries in this country during this pandemic. The unemployment rate, and I'm sure Trump doesn't want to hear this, for Blacks soared as high as 52%, which is just insane. And then they wonder why, oh, there's all of these shootings arising in these inner cities, and there's this so-called Black-on-Black crime that's taking place. Well, it's they don't have a job, and it's hot outside, so <laughs> people, their tensions are high. I was I was literally arguing with someone on Facebook last night, and I was trying to do it as rationally as possible, but they were giving me the all lives matter thingamadoo. And I was just like, all right, like, and this is something like I knew from high school, I'm not really friends with anymore, but I was like, okay, like, I'm going to try to have the conversation with a person that you have to have to get them to understand, like, yeah, all lives matter. And if that was true, we wouldn't have to have Black Lives Matter in the first place, right? But he also mentioned black on black crime. I'm like, why is it only white people who ever mention that? And if you're going to mention that, like, you have to talk about, like, you have to talk about over policing. You have to talk about how cities are designed. You have to talk about, Chris will love this, the federal highway system. All the things that, all the things that make one one group of citizens be more overly watched than another. 
right? I think someone said, like, if you want to know what a policeless society would look like, you just go to the richest part of town, it, right? It's so true, though. It's absolutely true. Access to the new civil right, access to everything, access to to news, access to education, access to capital, access to the internet. The access to having the means to have your voice come amplified quickly if you have a, a message, right, that's worthy of being published. And then we're able to mobile access to be able to mobilize people around your cause, which is something that we did not have for the longest time in Tulsa for uh, for Black Americans. And I think it, I don't want to say it, it's because the Eagle wasn't progressive enough, but I want to say that they probably weren't progressive enough, right? To where they could put out a message and say, hey, everybody, we're going to we're gonna crowd this space at City Hall. And we did. We did it tons of times. And we got policy changes for our community in North Tulsa, like the, the moratorium on dollar stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I noticed that you have a lot of guest pieces, guest writers come in to do pieces and then Obviously, you have uh, you write some pieces, and then you have uh, what seems to be some more regular columnists. So, do you have kind of like a pool of people that that you work with for a lot of the articles, and then for the other pieces, how do you how do you choose who I guess to, as you said, amplify? Yeah, so I have a few people that are like regular writers, and I would say Dion Osborne and Autumn Brown are probably like the two the two people that write the most besides myself. And then my friend, Erica Stone Burnett, she puts a, she drops a piece every now and then. And then of course, Calvin J. Ross, who is probably pretty, uh, most people are pretty familiar with him in this, in the community. So, but yeah, those are, those are pretty much the main, the main writers or contributors for the times. And I would even probably throw tyrants into that mix too. And so another thing that we do that I would say probably no other black publisher does in this country. Um, this is we actually make space for white people and we make space for them to be able to tell their story. They're coming to conscious racial consciousness story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really, really important for the nation. I mean, most, mostly yeah. for the fragile white, uh, white <laughs> ego, as we've learned, yeah. but also because it's a part of the conversation that needs to happen too. Yeah. Right. I've always told people, like, there's a reason why if you're going to do, say, Holocaust education, you want necessarily a Jewish person to teach it. And that's only for, like, that personal connection to it. So if white people want to have a conversation about truly understanding, no, understanding is the wrong word, but coming to terms with what they they can't understand, yeah. it's you, you kind of have to hear from someone that looks like you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about about June, but with everything that had been going on, I mean, one of the big things that, I mean, frankly, unfortunately got lost a little bit in June was Pride Month. It felt like because everything that was happening with Trump and the rally, with COVID, with all the protests related to Black Lives Matter, I mean, that felt like something that not necessarily fell by the wayside, but didn't didn't have as much space as it normally does in right. in Pride Month. And so I, I was just curious about your thoughts on that, because as we know that intersectionality is such a big part of, of what social justice is really about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely felt that it kind of 
I don't even know what the word is to describe it, but it did kind of fly under the radar this year because of all of the protests and, of course, the COVID. So we didn't have our prize. People weren't out down on downtown like we would normally be. I mean, even places like New York City or Atlanta, like we didn't see the big pride turnouts that we would normally see um, on television. But yeah, so the the intersectionality of being black and gay, I, I do want to kind of touch on that. It's a it's a tight spot. Some people would say that, oh, well, black people are more homophobic than other other racial groups. But I don't even think that's really true. I think it's it just depends really where you are in the country. If you're in a place that's conservative and thought like Oklahoma, then you're going to have a lot of black people that are going to not necessarily agree with the, the LGBTQ ideas or identities. And so, but as it relates to like myself in this, in this time in American history, it's, it's difficult to explain because I identify as a gay person, as a gay man. But at the same time, before I even open my mouth or before anyone asks me what my identity is, or they find out through getting to know me, I'm a black person, I'm a black man. And so some people get confused. Like when I say, oh, well, I'm black before I'm gay. And well, why can't you just be the same thing? And I'm like, well, in reality, I'm the same thing. But socially, the first thing that people see is this black skin. And depending on how they were raised, they're going to want to know if I'm a threat or, <laughs> or if I'm just, if I'm okay. So it's a hard spot to walk sometimes. And we're talking about multiple identities that people have, there's usually one that is visible and one that is invisible. And they have they have similar effects, but you as a person realize what people see first, what right. part mm -hmm. of you they see first. And that 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 affects how you end up then defining yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's let's go back a little bit to why you want to found the Black Wall Street Times what that was like early on, what, what that what that likes now as you've been setting milestones on on page hits and putting out your first print edition. Give us like give us like the quick history of of how and why you founded the Black Wall Street Times. Yeah, so I started the Black Wall Street Times. Um I started building the site in 2016, late 2016, and then I published my first horribly written article the day that Trump was inaugurated. <sighs> that was the first the first piece I put out. And at that time, I didn't know if it was just going to be a blog or if it was going to turn into what it is today. And it, I feel like it, there were times where I felt like it kind of ran away from me because it just seemed like it was so overwhelming that people were, wanted to know what I was thinking and those types of things. I didn't have a journalism, I don't have a journalism degree. I went to school for political science. And so it's been weird. Like, I, I feel like I've had imposter syndrome for like, the longest time. And I feel like maybe I would say probably since last summer is when I just started. And that's from 2017 to 2019 that I'm just now getting over that where I'm feeling confident and comfortable in the decisions that I'm making. It took, it took quite a while, quite a while for sure. But I started it also because there was this void. There was this, this empty space where Black people were being perceived a certain way in the local media. And it just seemed like kind of 
the way the media portrayed us was that we were just ranting about nonsensical stuff that we probably should just get over and <laughs> right move to the suburbs for a better school like we have jobs right but yeah there were there was a lot of uh, there's tons of reasons i could i could name tons of reasons but i would say the biggest thing is it's like i saw the the power behind owning a media company and what we could do if we had if we had such influence so well it certainly seems like you you tapped into a need and a niche that's been there for a long time have have you seen any of the local media shift at all having seen oh, yeah. a group of people come to you seeing that and thinking oh well maybe we need to try to get some of those readers back yeah and so like as far as like the readers i feel like they kind of like there's enough people to go around for everybody and i and people like to read tulsa world they like to read the black wall street times they like to read tulsa people and i think that's great it's, it's good to be able to have choice and to be able to go between different places as far as like the main like the the, the news stations the television news stations, i have seen a shift in how they report and it's probably because they know that I am capable of calling them out and reaching a lot of people. I've called out the Tulsa world a few times and they invited me to sit on their board. So, <laughs> which is great. So I could like kind of say, hey, this is probably not a good idea or maybe you should do it like this. And they're pretty good about it. Like they'll reach out and the editor, like a few editors will hit me up and they'll say, what do you think about this? Does it sound like this could be that word? Hmm. Racist? Yeah, maybe. And you know, I don't know. Let me look at it again. Um, <laughs> and and even when it comes to so when it comes to like the television news stations, they they're different because they're not print. But we will call them out too. I think I think it was like a few weeks ago, just before Juneteenth, we did a video live stream with uh, Courage and Ariel Davis from Focus Black Oklahoma and Autumn Brown, who writes for the Black Wall Street Times. Girl is smart. She's working on her PhD. She's going to probably get it at the end of the summer. And we were just talking about the bias, like the, 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 the racism that we see in the local media. And that thing, I don't know, it probably has over 10,000 views now. And a lot of people were, were, a lot of people in the media were talking about it. And some even reached out and said, thank you for this. Do you, do you see that as a, Avenue, you want to expand doing more video, putting out more videos really, um, oh, yeah, from Black Wall Street Times? Absolutely. Absolutely. We streamed the Juneteenth uh, celebration on our site, even though it kind of got behind a little bit. But I mean, we actually partnered with BET News, which is insane. Like, I'm like, you guys want to partner with us? Like, as big <laughs> as you are. But yeah, so it was great. Yeah, I remember when I when I clicked on the live link and I saw that I was like, oh, they're working with BET News. Just seeing their yeah. little watermark or whatever up on the up on the screen alongside yours was pretty cool. Yeah, I still can't believe that happened. I mean, I think like that's a good, I think like a micro microcosm for what the next year is going to be here in Tulsa as we lead up to the hundredth year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I feel like Tulsa handled itself very well that week but i imagine this is gonna be a big year for the black wall street times and no not that i want you to spoil any surprises you have for people but like what's going into 
365 ish days. Yeah. Now, obviously now less to the anniversary. Like what's, what's the black wall street times thinking about doing to sort of, sort of remind Telsa of its sort of hints, one of its hidden sins, I should say. Yeah. So we're definitely going to do more video series around just like conciliation or reconciliation, if that's what you want to call it. And just having conversations. So I don't know if you've seen Jada Pickett Smith's red table talk or the little table yeah. talk that she has. So conversations like that. So Suzanne and I, Suzanne Schreiber and I are planning to sit down and we're going to do our own little video of and I don't I don't know it might be like 20 minutes long uh, but it'll just be a a bunch of it'll just be a conversation we'll probably have to have different clips and stuff to make it short and we're just going to tell our story of from trying to get the name change lead school to Council Oaks and what we went through as human beings and how we both had our own faults and how we grew from that into better people and with the hopes of hundreds and thousands of people seeing it and being able to have conversations with other folks. Considering how hard you, you had to work to get the school's name changed, what do you think about this moment we're in where a lot of things that had been wrong since the beginning are quickly changing, like getting rid of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and right. the Redskins are going to change their name? Like Eskimo Pie. What do you think happened? Eskimo, uh, yeah. Is Eskimo Joe's going to change their name yet? I don't know. No? Okay. They're our next target, but we're coming. We're coming for you, Eskimo Joes. But I, we we actually asked this of Ariel Davis and Colby Webster yesterday, uh, another podcast recording. But what do you think is different about this moment? Like, why is why is something like changing the school's name to Council Oaks take years? And it just took it took a couple of weeks of protest for for people to remember that Aunt Jemima is kind of racist, and we should change it. So I think that America is is stepping into its into a, a period of racial consciousness, which is we've been needing it forever. But the the reason why they're stepping into why we're moving into this era is because if you just look back to history and you think about what took place on Bloody Sunday, people were visually able to see the police like brutalizing people and, and letting these dogs on them and the water hoses. And the, they saw that. They saw children suffering, people jumping off of the bridge to, to save their own lives. And now we're able to, 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 to see it again. And so I, I, I want to I phrase it like this because it's really important. So there was Bloody Sunday and there was a tons of other, other events that were recorded and taking place. And then we just kind of had this gap in the media where people were, okay, well, we've got civil rights passed. We've got this. They've done their march. Okay, every, every everybody's good. Kids are going, black kids can go to any schools they want, white kids, all of that. And of course, there's still racism that's taking place and systemically. But you think about what happened just, just before the mass protests broke out all over the world is you have the death of Ahmed Aubrey, which is caught on camera. You have the death of Breonna Taylor, which happens like a a week later as far as seeing, hearing about what's going on. And then the very next week, we have George Floyd being murdered on television by a police officer. It happened so close together that 
the top just blew off and I think everything just kind of came out. And so black people were just protesting, oh, well, we're just pissed off because police are brutalizing our communities. We have a 400 years of injustice that America has yet to really deal with. And so it's it's bigger than just police officers slamming two little black boys on the ground in North Tulsa for jaywalking. It's 400 years of receipts that have not been paid. I mean, it's it's kind of sad that it had to, it had to take like those three things happening in such quick succession for for I guess parts of white America to understand the frustration of right. black, black Americans. But what do we do with this moment? How do we not lose it? How do we not create that gap that that happened in the '60s after the protests and after the civil rights movement? Not to put you on the spot, yeah. to speak for all black Americans or all Americans, yeah. really. Yeah, that's true. So I think that it's uh it's important for for the white Americans who want to actually who want to see racial unity in this country to really step forward. And they have been doing that these past few weeks. I've never seen so many white people at a Juneteenth celebration in my entire life. But I was just thinking like, man, this is what America is supposed to be. Like we should be celebrating everybody's history because we're everybody. We're the whole, the world amalgamated into this dish of uh, a social project. Right. And so I think that that's what we have to do. And we have to listen to each other. Like if an indigenous, if indigenous people say, look, we don't want you to come to the, the fucking Black Hills because this is what you stand for. And you're over here protecting Andrew Jackson. And this is what he actually did to our people. You have to respect that. And the current administration has shown time and time again that they do not respect vulnerable or people that are indigenous people or black people or people from the Middle East or Asian people. Like it's just insane. The stuff that comes out of his mouth. I can't even believe it sometimes, but yeah, we got to stand up for people and not just look the other way. We have to get uncomfortable. Well, and one of the things I think Jesse, you've talked about this before is it does seem like that many of the marginalized groups and allies are more united around the different issues where it's less separate issues. It's not just we're locking up children in cages. And so there's a group over here fighting that there's issues related to police brutality. So the Black Lives Matter movement is helping with that and so forth. It seems like there is more uniting of the different groups fighting for overall social justice instead of picking one movement and just focusing on that. Absolutely. I agree 100% with what you said. And so people that are in positions of leadership, I think it's very important that they publicly show that they are for all lives, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's what I've done. Like I wrote a letter to Senator Lankford for stepping up and saying, hey, we probably need to get rid of Columbus Day and we need to have... Juneteenth and we should put our $600 million behind that. And then it's like, oh, well, wait a second. Well, the indigenous people actually celebrate indigenous people's day on Columbus day. So this is probably what you should do. I know you're conservative and you don't want to spend $1.2 billion on all of this stuff, but you kind of need to do that because (laughs) the receipts are very long and they have yet to be been paid. So (laughs) we already have Columbus day now. So we're already losing that money. 
So like, it's not real. It's not real to me. It does. It's one of those things where like, yeah, I, I, I get what he was saying. But I'm like, that, that's not an argument. That's not a hill you want to die on yeah. in this particular argument. Mm-hmm. But we got to talk to them in their language. Otherwise, they're not going to understand. True. Somehow, I think this question originally began with the lead up to the anniversary of the race massacre. But I mean, there are going to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations in this next year. For those who have read the commission report that came out, I don't know, like over a decade ago now, I think. Yeah. Like you read that and I have problems like driving through town now because I'm like, oh, yeah, like like people get people gathered guns here and they picked up people here and they took people over here. Yeah. And I'm angry because one, it happened two because it was covered up and three, because we still haven't really truly dealt with it. Right. In the conversations that we are going to have with people in this next year, how do we get people past the well, I I didn't do it. I didn't do it. My family was wasn't here at the time. So like it doesn't affect me or I shouldn't have to change anything about me to do it. Like how do we how do we convince people that like even if this has nothing to do with you or your family or your family's history, like it's important that Tilsa as a whole collectively talks about this. So I was thinking about that the other day. So if GT Bynum were to come up to me and say, Well, I wasn't a part of this and that and I think so first of all, his I believe his his name is his his maiden name is like French or something like that, right? Like he comes from a French line, and so where were his people at? His people were probably in Louisiana, and they migrated here, and so of course his family comes from wealth. Well, let's look at what what was his family doing? The mm-hmm. people who owned my grandmother's side of the family, they own sugarcane plantations, tons of them, and then they were just passing. Black folks all over the place whenever they would have kids. Like, this stuff is so sick and deep. If we could really educate people, then we would probably decide uh, tomorrow to just go ahead and pass HR 40 or something. And I remember, like, just driving down in Louisiana and seeing all of these sugar plantations and these big sugar company and it's companies. And it's like, oh, well, why do I even owe my college right now? Like, they should be paying reparations for that. And I'm sorry to go off on a tangent, but these are like the little rabbit holes that I can go down. We um, love tangents. <laughs> but as far as like Pulsa, man, I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it feels like there are, I mean, Tulsa is just made up of different bubbles. It's, you've, we've, as a city become, I mean, become, I mean, yeah, very, it's a very segregated city. It just is. I'm mean, not that that's massively different than a lot of other cities, but it is very segregated and not just by race, but it seems like by ideology as well, that you, you're you in one part of the city, you have a very different conversation than another city. And that seems to be what the hardest thing is, is that people surround themselves with people who think and talk like themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of what people do though, right? Like we kind of bump into our own little groups, but like, so I was just thinking, I just finally remembered because I went down that tangent. I was like, oh, I got to get back to this this space. But um, just thinking about Bynum and his family, that during the massacre or before the massacre, I saw a, a, a photo. He had posted a photo of his family like four generations back in this humongous house. And you could just tell that they came from wealth. Like they've had wealth in their in their family for generations before, four generations ago. And thinking about my own family history as it relates to Black Wall Street and 
we were, I believe we were like the third or fourth wealthiest black family in Black Wall Street. And we had a we had big houses and we had property and 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 means, right? But then in 1921 it, it all got destroyed. And it's like, well, if that would have never happened, perhaps we would be as well off as you are today and your family. Perhaps we would have parks named after after our people had there not been a massacre. And so that's the privilege that they live with. And they don't even think about those things. And here, a lot of us think about it all the time, like, man, well, that kind of sucks. Oh, well, let's just continue with our day. Yeah, like the, the effects of generational wealth are really hard to explain to people, but it's kind of clear once they get it, like there are things that people don't have to deal with because their great grandfather, you know, bought land and what ended up being a fancy neighborhood. And so that, that house became worth a lot more. And then the, the money from that covered the cost of other things. It's, it all builds on each other. So it does, you know, when, when people say like, well, we should just get over it. I'm like, well, you get over your generational wealth then just give that all away then. Absolutely. Right. Cause it, it has a it has a it has a similar effect in the opposite direction. Like I want to mention, so my grandfather, and this is very unique. You'll be at a, at a college um, commencement speech or something, or you'll hear, "Oh, well, if you're a first generation graduate college student, why don't you stand up?" And then, of course, there's going to be a disproportionate number of people of color that are going to stand up, right? Well, that's different for me because my dad went to college, his dad went to college, and that's just not even really heard of when it comes to black to black people, right? And I think that that was probably the key to us being able to rebuild our lives so quickly and to where I've even landed where I am today is because before the massacre, they were getting educated at Langston University and they they saw the importance of it whereas most black people they don't have that that unique experience of being a third or fourth college graduate and being black at the same time since some people's parents and or grandparents weren't allowed into the majority of colleges Absolutely. so yeah well and that that brings up kind of an interesting point cuz one of the things that has seemed seemingly come out of this moment is obviously there's been a lot of of discussions around privilege and bias for for years now. But what's been interesting is seeing various groups come to terms with their their biases. Obviously, white folks have a lot of work to do, but seeing a lot of different uh, minority groups come to terms with biases and privileges they may have had that have been hidden and how that has been part of this overall overall discussion. I think that's been fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. 100%, yeah. For our listeners and our true Australian listeners, what, again, like, I don't, I don't want to put you in the position where you have to like speak for your entire race or identity, but what do you think is the best use of say a middle-class white person's time during this moment? If they're like, okay, there are obviously things I don't understand and I want, I want to learn. I want to educate myself. Where, where should they go? Other than the Black Wall Street Times, um, I would say go to Fulton Street Books in North Tulsa, or you can even go to Magic City Books because they've got some great stuff there too. And just start educating yourself about Black history. I always recommend the book Stamped from the Beginning, which is extremely, it is a 
big book. So if you don't want to uh, ingest all of that, you could do the, the abridged version, which is stamped. So I recommend starting with that. And then if, if you feel like you've got some issues with just the word black <laughs> or the word racism, then probably you need to delve into white fragility and read, read up on that. So, yeah, there's tons of books out there. But I would say those two are probably the starting points. And then once you get past that, I would say the third book you should read is How to Be an anti, Anti-Racist. I would say that's the third book in that order. I, I just right. downloaded that one, so maybe I'll save that one and go back and come back to it. <laughs> so what about specifically with the, the Black Wall Street Times? Because we always like to give our, our listeners the opportunity to not only be able to connect with our, our guests, but also how they can help, how they can, whether it's magnify, donate, whatever. So how, how can they connect with you and Wall Street, Black Wall Street Times and how can they help? Yeah, so we have a GoFundMe right now, and I think we hit 25000 which is awesome because we've never been able to really raise money. But I think everyone's kind of waking up and saying, oh, gosh, we really do need to put our feet put our feet on the ground and start helping out. So that's one way. And of course, just to share, like if you don't have the means, that is perfectly fine. I know the economy is, is um, you know, swimming for its life right now. So if you, you don't have the means to donate, then you can just share or just like, or just leave a comment. Like those things are really, really impactful. And even to me, sometimes I'll just get an email from some random person somewhere in the country some random white person and they'll they'll say something to the extent of like I'm so happy I found your your page and I've been learning a lot and my family is extremely conservative and sometimes I feel isolated and I feel like I can't even have a conversation with them there are so many white people out there that are like that they're coming into their racial consciousness where they understand their their whiteness in relation to every other person of color in the country and they feel like they're by, by by themselves. So when like they reach out, I'm like, oh man, I want to help them. So at the same time, it's like, and they're they're trying to help me, and it's like, well, you probably need some help too. <laughs> Let me get you some resources. Here's somebody to call. So, but that that gives me hope. Like, yeah. I really do believe that we're better than than what appears to be flashed on television right now. So is Facebook the best way for them to connect directly with Black Wall Street Times? Yeah, they I would say probably Facebook and then we're on Instagram and we're on Twitter as well. So you can connect through those. I don't know how to use TikTok yet. I'm really trying to convince myself <laughs> that we probably need to do TikTok and Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, I feel like for the for the, those video-based ones, like you should be able to make one and like a, another program sends it to both like TikTok and Snapchat because like uh, – I don't have time to make two separate video type things. Come on. Yeah, that takes time. Mm-hmm. I got, I'm not a teenager. I don't have this kind of time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, other than not counting June when you were busy, super busy doing amazing things, during this pandemic, what have you been doing when you're not working during your downtime? What's been your sort of pop culture uh, comfort food? Oh, my God. Oreo cookies, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So actual comfort food. Yeah, <laughs> man. I don't even know what comfort food is. I know what Oreo cookies are, though. <laughs> um, but, man, to be honest with you, I feel like I work all the time. Like, I try not to work, and then something comes up, and 
I feel like this is like my life's ministry or my life's work is to constantly be conscious of what's going on in the world. And when the moment and, and like being in media, like it's a 24 hour turnaround. So you've got to like hit it hard right there or you're going to miss the the window of making a deep impact. Do you have any like movies or TV shows or books that you've been reading when you when you kind of need to clear out your headspace a little bit or just no time for that right now? So here's the thing, like when I say it's like my life's work, it totally is. So if I'm not, I don't like joy, joy read. Like I'm Mm -hmm. always reading something that's going to be able to make me think critically and to, in some sort of way I can apply whatever I'm reading to what I'm writing about or what I'm talking about with a group of folks. But that is, I would say probably before then, what was the show that I was watching that everybody else was watching last year? So the one with the girl with the dragons. Oh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I yeah. was like bouncing the hell out of that. Yeah, <laughs> I would just make my house all dark and stuff and just make it super cold. And I would just get into that. I think I think that tells us a little bit about how 2020 is going with with Game of Thrones being the last show you were able to kind of dedicate yeah. time to and watch. Yeah. <laughs> Whew, uh, just so long ago now, I and know. I haven't like watched a movie since all of the protesting break has broken out. I've been that busy since. Yeah. No, yeah. The the longest thing I've watched since then has been Hamilton, pretty much. So. Everything else has been like a TV show here and there, but not. I haven't sat myself down for two to three hours because I'm like, well, there's probably things to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, the last thing I'll just say is: is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to to plug before we wrap up? Either events or or programming that you're putting out that you really want to get get plugged and that we can promote for you? No, I don't know. Like probably, okay. <laughs> but I just can't think about it off the top of my head. They can subscribe to the Black Wall Street Times. I was going to call it e-bulletin. No one calls it e-bulletins anymore. <laughs> what am I, newsletter? 70? Uh, <laughs> newsletter, yeah, so that's the word. E-bulletin, wow. All right. Okay. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go to uh, www.ewstimes.com and hop in there. You can get a free subscription. Did, did you think about having the full name as the URL at one point, and then you're like, that might be too long. Oh yeah, for sure. And actually <laughs> I think that we do have it, but it's, it's both like how you can make it. Redirects. Both, so. to, yeah, yeah. It, it redirects. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah I, I've always noticed that. So I'm like, Oh, the, the, I was like, that organization didn't realize how long that name was going to be in URL form. <laughs> yeah. You got to think about those things, especially, especially in emails. You didn't want to have to type at black wall street times. Yeah. Spell that all out. Right. Yeah, 15 times a day. Mm-hmm. Both Chris and I know how busy you are, and I just want to thank you for taking time to talk to us and uh, get back to doing actual useful things <laughs> instead of talking to us. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Nehemiah Frank. To, uh, if you are too tired to Google the Black Wall Street Times, you can click on the link in our show notes. And please subscribe to their newsletter. Check them out on Facebook. They've got some great videos and they've got some great articles. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And again, Telsa, be safe out there. Wash your hands. Get it done. Wear a mask. Mm-hmm.